0: And I hope that you will meet me in 2 Samuel chapter 2 as we look together at verses 12 to 32. What we find here is not a pretty picture. What we find here is some of the very worst of human nature. And it really shouldn't be that shocking to us. It may be shocking to read such things in the Bible because it doesn't conform to our preconceived ideas about the kind of book the Bible should be, but you will read about far worse things if you simply scan the headlines. It shouldn't be that shocking. It describes the nature of the world in which we live. And I don't know anyone who would claim that we live in a perfect world. And I don't know anyone who would claim that they live a perfect life that they don't have problems that need to be addressed. But what do we do about those problems in the world and in our lives? How do we go about writing what is wrong in the world? This is where we start to divide up into various camps and various schools of thought because we disagree. And we disagree about the role of God in all of this. What role does God play in writing what is wrong in this world and in our lives? And for some, They just don't believe in God to begin with. They're atheists. And so obviously, if you're an atheist, then you would make the claim that it's completely up to us to fix the world and to right what is wrong. But others would fall somewhere on a spectrum between two different schools of thought, two complex words that you should know. The first is deism, and the second is theism. Deism and theism. And while I don't know anyone who goes around saying that they are a deist, many of us, many of you, are, for all intents and purposes, deists. It's a theology that arose, especially in the 18th century, and it posits that God created the world and God set the world in motion and God has laid down certain moral principles, but beyond that, God does not actively intervene in the world or in our lives. And one of the most famous American proponents of deism was our third president, Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson famously read his Bible and did something that most of us would not have the guts to do if we came across something in the Bible that just did not align with our sensibilities or that struck us as out of date or impractical. Thomas Jefferson had the guts to just cut it out, literally, He cut it out, and his Bible, the Jefferson Bible, is a famous historical specimen from that period. Most of us, if we come across something that seems to us impractical or out of date, we just kind of avoid that part of the Bible. We don't quote it, and we don't like it when preachers talk about those parts of the Bible. But inside of a deist worldview it's still up to us to fix what is wrong with the world. Yes, there is a God. Yes, this God has established certain moral principles that can be established from human reason, but it's still up to us to fix what is wrong in the world. And again, many of us, even though we don't know the word, we don't know the concept, we live as though it's up to us. Now contrast that with theism. The view that the God who created this world is a God who sustains this world second by second. And this God has established moral principles. He has spoken and he is actively governing his world with sovereign power. And our part then is... To know this God, and to trust this God, and to obey this God. Not just to establish principles and then go about our business, but to trust this God and obey this God on an hourly basis. Two drastically different worldviews. And you and I will fall into one of those camps. And it has all kinds of implications for your hope and for your expectations for the world and for your life. If you believe it's up to you, then that's going to shape your hope and it's going to shape your decisions and what you long for and what you want in life. If, on the other hand, you believe that God governs his world, well, then that's going to shape your hope as well. So where do you fall? Here's what you need to know today. Your life will either be lived as a godless game, or it will be lived as a God-governed pilgrimage. Those are the options. It's not enough just to believe in God we have to go further and ask what kind of God? What is that God like? What does that God expect from us and of us? And if it's a God who's off there somewhere, well then, this is all a godless game for all intents and purposes. But if this God who created you and created me is a God who is actively at work in this world and if he has spoken through his word well then we are god governed and we're not just playing a game we're going somewhere we are on a pilgrimage we have a purpose we have meaning we have significance what we find in second samuel 2 is what life looks like when we live it as a godless game just a little background. We are in the midst of a civil war in Israel. David, God's chosen king, has been recognized as king by the tribe of Judah. But the other 11 tribes of Israel have consolidated around a descendant of the villainous king Saul by the name of Ishbosheth. And Ishbosheth is really a puppet of Saul's general, Abner. Abner. And the principal characters in this portion we're looking at today are Abner, the general of Saul's regime, and Joab, the general of David's regime. But both of them operate out of a deistic worldview, and they operate based on what they think is right in their own eyes. Let's see how this plays out. And let's see the difference between a godless game and a God-governed pilgrimage. Picking up at verse 12. Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Mahanaim and went to Gibeon. Joab, son of Zeruah, and David's men went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. One group sat down on one side of the pool, and one group on the other side. Then Abner said to Joab, Let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. All right, let them do it, Joab said. So they stood up and were counted off 12 men from Benjamin and Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and 12 for David. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into his opponent's side, and they fell down together. So that place in Gibeon was called Helkath Hazarim. The battle that day was very fierce, and Abner and the Israelites were defeated by David's men. So these two opposing sides in the midst of this civil war, two families, Joab is related to David and Abner is related to Saul's family. They They converge in this showdown around this pool that archaeologists have discovered. A large pool serves as the line of scrimmage, so to speak. They face off with one another trying to test each other and see who's going to make the first move. And Abner says, I've got an idea. Let's have some of the young men fight it out for us. And what he proposes is something called representative combat. It's the same kind of combat that Goliath, the giant, the Philistine, proposed to Israel. You send someone out to fight me, and we will fight as representatives of our opposing teams, and whoever wins will win the battle. Sound like a good idea? And Joab says, all right, let's do it. And look at the result. They're all struck down in a tragic loss of life, and the place where it happens is given a new name, meaning field of daggers, and even more bloodshed ensues. What we need to see are the principles that stand behind a godless game worldview and a God-governed pilgrimage worldview. The godless game worldview simply leads to a cheap view of human life. A cheap view of human life. Whereas, a God-governed life stands on the principle that human life matters, that it has value before God. It is costly. It is costly. So how can Abner and how can Joab and how can so many people take such a cheap view of human life? Well, there's a sequence here. There's a sequence that we can see playing out. The sequence begins with Abner's assumption and Joab's assumption that their king, their human king, in Joab's case it's David for Abner, it's Ishbosheth. their king is the only one who can fix what is wrong in the world. And that is their goal, to get their human leader, to get their political figure, to get their king on the throne because they believe, they're convinced that that's the solution that their people need and that the world needs. Not, mind you, because God has said anything about the matter, but because they are committed to their tribe. Abner's committed to his family. Joab is committed to his family. That's the first stage of the sequence. The next stage of the sequence is if my king is the only one who can fix what is wrong, that means that I can use any means that justify that end. I can use any means because I'm convinced my king is the right one. My leader is the one. And so whatever it takes to get my leader on the throne, I will do. And then the third stage is when you start to see people as means to an end and you approach life from a utilitarian standpoint you don't see people as human beings you see them as a representation of something else that stands in your way maybe and both abner and joab operate out of this world view so what so what if these 24 young men die. We're serving a greater end, right? Because my leader is the one. I'm convinced that my king is the right king. Now contrast that with a God-governed, a theistic worldview that is on a pilgrimage To obey God no matter what. And whatever God says sets the agenda. If you live inside of that worldview, then human life matters. Why? Because of the truth affirmed in Genesis at the very beginning. Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male. Male. And female, he created them. The worth of a human being is not defined by their utility, by what they can do or what they can't do. It's not defined by what they have done or haven't done. It is defined by what God says about them. And what does God say? that every single human life is a reflection of the very goodness, the image, the goodness, and the greatness of God. It reflects the glory of God. Imperfectly, yes, but it still reflects the goodness and the greatness and the glory of our Creator. And this has all kinds of implications for current debates that are swirling right now. It has been suggested in the midst of this pandemic that the health of our economy is more valuable than the lives of some senior adult people. And even some senior adults have said, I don't want my vulnerability to infringe upon other people's livelihoods. So open the economy and if I get this virus and if I die, so be it. And if other people die, so be it. That is not a biblical view of human life. A biblical view of human life, a costly view of human life says that all life matters to God. And yes, black lives matter to God. No, we may not be able to affirm the agenda behind that slogan or the movement behind that slogan. But if you cannot say, as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, that black lives matter. If you cannot affirm that sentence without stutter, stammer, or apology, then you need to do a heart check. Black lives matter in the same way that unborn lives matter. Disabled lives matter. Immigrant lives matter. Senior lives matter every life matters lgbtq plus lives matter can you affirm that today if you cannot then you are operating out of a godless game worldview not a god-governed pilgrimage Next, as we move to verse 18, we see the guidance. What guides each of these worldviews? The three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Azael. Now, Azael was as fleet-footed as a wild gazelle. He chased Abner, turning neither to the right nor to the left as he pursued him. Abner looked behind him and asked, Is that you, Azael? It is, he answered. Then Abner said to him, Turn aside to the right or to the left. Take one of the young men and strip him of his weapons. But Azael would not stop chasing him. Again, Abner warned Azael, Stop chasing me. Why should I strike you down? How could I look your brother Joab in the face? but Azael refused to give up the pursuit, so Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Azael's stomach, and the spear came out through his back. He fell there and died on the spot, and every man stopped when he came to the place where Azael had fallen and died. A godless game perspective on life in this world, is guided by the best of human wisdom. Whereas a God-governed pilgrimage is guided by the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Look at what's motivating Azael and what he's relying on. He's motivated to eliminate to terminate this threat to his king, David. He's on David's team, so he's going to take out Abner. Maybe he was friends with some of the young men who were killed before. Either way, he's angry. He's angry and he wants vengeance, and he's going to exact that upon Abner. And so what does he rely on? Well, we're told in verse 18 that he was as fleet-footed as a wild gazelle. He's fast, He is relying on his own ability. He is relying on his own strength, his own ability. And sadly, look where that leads. Having a spear thrust through him. Well, what's motivating Abner? Well, he says, stop following me. And we can't blame him for defending himself. Azael means to kill him. But look at what's really motivating him. He's not worried about what will God think about what I do. He says, look at verse 22, how could I look your brother Joab in the face? If I kill you, Azael, then I'm just going to add fuel to the fire of this family feud. He's worried about what Joab will do and what Joab will think. Never mind God. And the result is a godless game. Each person doing what seems right to them, operating on the basis of human pride and human ability and human strength. And it leads to nonsense and bloodshed and recklessness. Whereas, a God-governed life starts with what we read in Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Why is that? Well, we can define wisdom as the ability to apply truth to daily life. The ability to apply truth to daily life. But we cannot apply truth if we do not know what is true. And we do not know what is true until we listen to what our Creator has said to the Lord God Almighty And if we listen to what he has said, then he reveals himself to be a holy and awesome God who has performed wonders both in creation and through his people. That's the God revealed in the Bible. And we are to fear him. Yes. Now, so many of us recoil at that and and we think that we need to try to substitute a synonym here. Well, We don't really need to fear God, right? It's more about respect. Yeah, respect God. Or, Or show reverence for God, right? Acknowledge God. Whereas the scriptures are clear. Let's take God at his word. He says we are to fear him. So let's do that. Why should we fear him? Well, there's a healthy kind of fear and there's an unhealthy kind of fear. If your fear of God paralyzes you into, into failure to act, if it leads you to live a life of disobedience because you think you can't show yourself before God, well, that's unhealthy. But if your fear of God leads you to fear his judgment if it leads you to have a holy dread of hell and eternal punishment, if it leads you to confess, God, you have every right to send me, a sinner, to hell. You have every right to cut me off for eternity because of my transgressions against you, a holy and righteous and awesome God. you can confess that. And that's the beginning of wisdom. Now God has your attention. Now you're ready to listen. Now you're ready to hear some good news. Now you're ready to hear a word of grace and mercy from a God who is pleased to be generous with His mercy and His grace and His kindness. But until you can confess that, until you truly know what it means to walk, to live in the fear of God, you're not ready to know what's true. And if you don't know what's true, then you can't apply what's true and live in wisdom. And it's not enough just to know what is true. All who follow His precepts have good understanding. All who know it and do it, who live it out, that is the beginning of wisdom. So what are you relying on in your life right now? Are you relying on your abilities, on your strength? Those things will pass away. They won't last. They'll go the way of Azael and his speed. But the fear of the Lord... give you wisdom. Wisdom to live. Wisdom to have resilience in the face of whatever life brings your way in the midst of this fallen and depraved world. Now let's look at the results. What does a godless game result in? Verse 24, but Joab... And Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was setting, they came to the hill of Ammah near Gia on the way to the wasteland of Gibeon. Then the men of Benjamin rallied behind Abner. They formed themselves into a group and took their stand on top of a hill. Abner called out to Joab, Must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize that this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your men to stop pursuing their fellow Israelites? Joab answered, As surely as God lives, if you had not spoken, the men would have continued pursuing them until morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the troops came to a halt. They no longer pursued Israel, nor did they fight anymore. All that night, Abner and his men marched through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, continued through the morning hours, and came to Mahanaim. Then Joab stopped pursuing Abner and assembled the whole army. Besides Azael, 19 of David's men were found missing, but David's men had killed 360 Benjamites who were with Abner. They took Azael and buried him in his father's tomb at Bethlehem. Then Joab and his men marched all night and arrived at Hebron by daybreak. So after all this bloodshed, after all this, what are we left with? What's the result The result is not much. It's inconclusive. They come to blows again, and just prior to a final assault, Abner pleads with Joab. How long is this going to continue? Are we all going to die here? Is it worth it? Because we know that bloodshed is just going to get more bloodshed. Have you had enough? And the other part of the story is that Abner still has the majority. And if Joab went forward with this attack, maybe he would have defeated Abner and his troops, but all the other tribes of Israel would get word of this and come to the aid of the Benjamites. So they stop. And it shows us that the very best that you will gain in this world from a godless game perspective is temporal joy. Temporal joy. Because a game has to come to an end at some point, it ends on the board, in the arena, at the finish line, on the court, in the stadium. It comes to an end. And you can look back on the game and you can say, well, we made some good memories. Right? We had some fun. But then it's over. And the very best that you have is when I stand to do your funeral in a quiet cemetery. And I talk about all the good memories you made. And all your achievements. And that's it. That's the end of the story. But, for those who are committed to the God-governed pilgrimage, there's the promise of eternal joy. That the good in this life, and there is a lot of good in this life, is not the end of the story. That this is a pilgrimage that is leading to a goal. It's not just a game that wraps up when the clock runs out. It's a pilgrimage that is aimed toward God Himself. Not just benefits that come from God, but God Himself to fulfill what you were created to do, which is to know God, to enjoy God, to glorify Him. And yes, to receive a peace that surpasses all understanding, to receive a comfort that can never, ever be stolen, to receive love that surpasses the best loves in this world. You were created to know that and to receive that for eternity. And yet, we settle for what is temporary. We live our lives as though God doesn't exist. We make decisions without God being a part of the equation at all. And it's a game. Sure, it can be fun. Sure, there can be joy, but it ends at the grave. Now, what is God doing in all of this? We see the results from a human standpoint are inconclusive, but what is God doing? What is God doing? Well, yes, no one really triumphs, but God prevents Joab's army from moving forward. Because God is governing all of this. And he allows Joab's team, which is David's team, to get the upper hand. God has his own purposes. His purpose is to get David on the throne. And the result of all of this nonsense is to get David on one step closer to that throne. Even though Joab is operating from a godless standpoint, God is watching over the whole state of affairs. Everybody is doing exactly what they want to do, and yet God is fulfilling his sovereign purposes through it all. And to see how that plays out, I invite you to hear these words from Some lonely, isolated Christians in the city of Jerusalem, knowing that they were by far in the minority, not having any hope that they may be the end of the story. Here's what they said in Acts chapter 4, verse 24 Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. God's purpose Is to get his king on the throne. And God's king ultimately is his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And while Herod and Pontius Pilate and the people who crucified Jesus thought that they were playing a political game, and they thought that Jesus came to play that kind of political hardball, they knew how to take care of him. Just crucify him. That'll end that. (laughs) That's enough of him. And yet, look what the sovereign creator of this universe did through it. They plotted in vain. Christ triumphed through the cross and over the cross, over death itself. And now, and now, your eternal destiny will be defined by your relationship to Him. And yes, you can go about your life and go about your business and you can make your decisions without any recognition of God, without any fear of the Lord. And you can rely on the best of human wisdom. And you can see people as objects to be used and you do your thing and maybe you're very successful. But it ends at the grave. But if, if you want truth, and if you want real healing in your life, and you want real hope, and you want real help in your life, it's to be found here in Jesus, and in submitting, yes, submitting your life to him. And saying, Jesus, here is my life, here is my heart, here are my plans, here's my agenda, here are my obsessions, here's everything I have. It's yours. Use it as you please. I'm tired of playing a godless game and going around in circles. I want real hope, I want real life that can start for you today. If you will confess Jesus is Lord of your life and he is Lord of all, that promise is for you. And if you find yourself getting sucked into playing this godless game, you can say, Jesus, take my life. Take this plan. I know I didn't make this plan with your guidance. I know I'm not living this part of my life with your help. Have it. Let your Holy Spirit work in me. I'm yours. Can you say that today? He's ready to receive you. His grace, his love, and his mercy is available. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you that we do not have to live on our own. We do not have to find our own way. We don't have to manufacture our own joy and contentment and satisfaction. All because you have spoken, and you have spoken clearly through your word and through your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would convict us where we have gone astray, that you would bring us back onto the path of pilgrimage toward you, not toward success, not toward achievement, but toward you and you alone. Lord, you are our hope, you are our rock, and you are our salvation. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We thank you so much for watching. If you have any prayer concerns, if you have any questions, anything you'd like to share with us, if you have any ministry needs, please reach out by email. Have a wonderful week.